الحمدللہ رب العالمین والصلاة والسلام على المبعوث رحمة للعالمین وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد وأنتم الأعلون إن كنتم مؤمنين Dear young friends, dear older friends, dear ulama, <clears throat> let me just tell you a quick story. I generally don't use these kind of stories, but this one is a, one of those classical stories that you would have generally heard. And I think it's a really, really, really good story. So I'm going to mention it. Do you like stories? Harun al-Rashid was one of the greatest of the Abbasid Khalifs. And he became a Khalifa at a time when already the Abbasid Khalifa, uh, uh, Caliphate was quite extended anyway. And he had a huge amount of land and people under his control. One day he's walking along the seashore. I'm not sure which river it was, but he was walking along the seashore. And he, see this, he sees this old man who was in his kingdom, in his area. His name was Bahlul. Bahlul was this older man who used to be a bit eccentric. Eccentric means he's a bit unique in the way he does things. He's not the normal kind of guy. Sorry, we've got children here. We need to keep it relevant to them. It's quite a task, isn't it? I was sitting upstairs listening to your tone. I was like, okay, there's children there. <laughs> because, um, so you understand what eccentric means now? Right? He's a bit unique and a bit different. So, you know what that old man was doing? He was building sandcastles. And have you ever seen an old man building sandcastles? Right? No, now you have. He was building sandcastles, these palaces. So, Harun Rashid is walking along with his wife. Anybody know his wife's name? Zubaydah. Good job, not Zuleikha, right? Zubaydah. That was his wife's name. She was actually the daughter of one of the greatest of the Abbasid Khalifs, uh, Abu Ja'far al-Mansur, who actually built Baghdad, who was the one who established Baghdad as the Darul Khilafah after the Umayyads, he moved it to Baghdad in Iraq. So Zubaydah was a really wonderful woman who has done a lot of welfare work. She was also uh, the one responsible for bringing water to the Hajis in Mina and Muzdalifa Arafat by a canal, because there was no water source in those days and the Hajis used to find it very difficult. This was obviously several hundred, uh, over a thousand years ago. Right. So, as they're walking, he's in front, and he sees this Bahlul making sandcastles. Sand he said, Bahlul, what are you doing? He says, I'm making palaces of Jannah. And I'm selling them for one dinar a piece. So I'm selling them for maybe, maybe 50 pounds for one. So Harun Rashid is obviously a Khalif, he's a businessman. He says, who's going to give you one dinar for a sand castle? So he carries on. <clears throat> His wife comes along and again, she sees him building this sand castle. He says, what are you doing? He says, I'm building palaces of Jannah. And I'm selling them for one dinar a piece. So she said, okay, I'll buy one from you. Right? Women are more emotional, less business minded in that sense. She says, okay, I'll buy one for whatever reason she bought it. So she buys one for one dinar. 
At night time, Harun Rashid goes to sleep as he does every night and he sees a dream. And in that dream, he sees himself in paradise, in Jannah. And as he's walking in Jannah, he suddenly sees this huge, beautiful palace. And emblazoned across the front is Zubaydah, that this is Zubaydah's palace. So he thinks it's his, wife, his wife's palace. He says, can I go and look at it from the, to the guards? He says, can I go and look at it? Can I go and inspect it? He says, no, you're not allowed. This is your wife's palace. When he wakes up in the morning, he realizes that he should have also bought one of those sand castles. Would you have bought one if you'd seen it for one dinar? No. Well, you probably don't have the dinar, right? That's why. Um, so when he wakes up in the morning, he feels really upset that I've missed out on an opportunity. So the next morning, the, ne uh, when, uh, the, the next day, he says, I'm going to go back to that same place, hoping that Bahlul is making sandcastle. I'll buy one, I'll buy maybe a few today. So he goes and yes, surely there is Bahlul making sandcastles. Says Bahlul, what are you doing? He says, I'm making palaces of Jannah. And I'm selling them. He says, okay, I'm going to take a few. He says, yeah, today each one is equivalent to your entire kingdom. So he says, what's the problem? Yesterday there were one dinar, maybe 50, 100 pounds. And today you're asking for the entire kingdom. So he said, yes, yesterday they were, it was based on Iman bil ghaib. And today it's Iman bil mushahada. What that means basically is that yesterday if you purchased it, it would have been like you're bringing faith with the unseen, just based on what you hear from a wise man. And today you know what you're going to get, you know what it's worth, and that's why the cost of it is higher. <clears throat> Essentially, today we don't understand the value of our faith. And hence, we're not willing to give much to it. Our deen of Islam is a faith that is one of the biggest things in our faith is, as Allah says in the beginning in Surah Al-Baqarah, and then towards the end of that, it says, الَّذِينَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ الَّذِينَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ The people who believe in the unseen. Have you guys ever seen paradise? Hellfire? Have you seen Allah? You have not seen any of this. So that is our faith is primarily based on that. It's a big idea. Without that, there'd be nothing you could do. For example, let's give you an example. There's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where the Prophet ﷺ said that عَجَبًا لِأَمْرِ الْمُؤْمِنِ فَإِنَّ أَمْرَهُ كُلَّهُ خَيْرٍ What a wonderful state it is for the believer, any believer, as long as they're true believers. Because every state of his is a good one. Whether you're having difficulty in your life and you're going through a difficult time, whether that's uh, with a leak in your car, God forbid, you've just lost somebody, an accident, or whatever the case is, or you're enjoying your life. You've just enjoyed a wonderful meal. You've just had a promotion at work. You've just had, mashallah, a new child. You've just got a new job, whatever the case is. Regardless of your state, the believer state is always a good one as long as they deal with it with belief. And then the Prophet ﷺ makes a very bold claim. This is, he says, for nobody but the believer. This is for nobody but the believer. Then he gives an example that if you are in good times and you make shukr and thank Allah, 
then that will be good for you. And if you are having bad times and you make sabr and you're patient, then that's good for you. So what does this exactly mean? Firstly, <clears throat> let's just take the difficult times. When you have difficult times, especially if you become helpless, just imagine that something happens and you contact somebody to help you and they can't. You contact somebody else and they can't. Generally, the human being goes to other people to get help. Well, they first they go to themselves. When they can't do it themselves, then they go to others. Now you've asked your uncle, you've asked your father, you've asked your friend, nobody can help you. Suddenly, the world starts becoming smaller and constrained. And you start feeling like, this is difficult now, nobody can help me. We should have gone to Allah first while asking others. Now the believer, the, the, the half-decent believer will go to Allah eventually. Right? Now imagine if you had no belief in Allah. How would you even feel in that situation, the helplessness? Take another person. Imagine a guy in Syria or in Kashmir or anywhere else, right, where they're being persecuted. They can't call out to anybody. There's nobody to help them. Even other Muslims around the world or whatever it is, it's just nobody to help them because it's the way it's done. They're absolutely helpless. Just imagine the mental turmoil this person would go through. What is it that can give them any hope? If it's not for Iman, what can give them hope? There's nothing that can give you hope. Now, Iman only gives you hope because you know that Allah is watching, He's in control, He is, he is planning the best for you, and at the end of the day, there is a paradise. There is a day of judgment when all of these people who've oppressed you, that you can't do anything against them because they're well connected. You go to the police, they're connected to the police. You know, maybe not in the UK as much, but in other countries, you go to the police. For example, there's a person who's just been robbed of 700,000 pounds in India. Somebody took his 700,000 pounds, right? I said, why don't you go to the police? He says, if I go to the police, they'll put him in prison. I won't get my money yet. Then what they'll do is they'll tell him that, look, we're going to make it really difficult for you unless you pay us because they know he's got the money somewhere. So he'll start paying them and then I will have to start paying them to get the job done faster and they will keep going back between myself and him and making money that way and God knows when I'll get justice. That's the state in some countries. Now you guys from Pakistan don't think it's any better there. I'm, I'm hoping it's better there, right? But that's the situation in many countries around the world. You just feel helpless. There's nothing you can do. We should make shukr that we have something like that here. You feel like you can have redress. So imagine a person like that. What else has he got to hold on to? Except faith in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That okay, fine. If I can just overcome it here, inshallah in the hereafter, there will be a day of judgment. And there will be no contacts for this person to, uh, to, to, to invoke on his side. He will be in trouble and I will be inshallah given a status in Jannah. No. Generally, when it's a difficult time, we may remember Allah. But when it's a good time, then we forget to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because what happens is that when, you, when everything is going right, when you have money to spend, when you can get what you want, the clothing you want, the food you want to eat, then that creates, this is the nature of the world, it creates a false sense of confidence and comfort. So you don't need to think about helplessness because you think it's all happening for you. It's all working. So when everything is going right, you don't remember Allah as much. 
But the Prophet ﷺ is saying that for a believer, they should be remembering Allah in both states. Then the benefit of that is, imagine you've just had a wonderful meal. There's a new restaurant in town or wherever you guys go to eat. And mashallah, you had a smacking, you know, a lip smacking meal. It was really good, really tasty, well, uh, 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 well worth the price you paid for it. You've just enjoyed yourself. If you do shukr to Allah and you remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the right way, that, will, that selfish indulgent act will actually make you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As long as it's not haram. That's the beauty of our faith. You enjoy yourself and you thank Allah. You enjoy yourself in a halal way. You thank Allah and you get closer to Allah. And the Prophet said, this is not for anybody but a believer. Why is it not for anybody but a believer? Because only believers are going to think I'm going to get reward for something like this. Or I'm going to this sacrifice that myself or my mother is doing for the cancer that she is um, uh, that she's suffering from. If she dies from that, she's going to be a shaheed, which means that she's got a straight way to paradise in the hereafter. Who else believes that except believers? So now the atheists are going to tell you, you're just making yourself feel good. These are just all feel good factors that you're going to be rewarded if you do shukr and you're going to be rewarded if you do sabr that there's something for you this is just to make you feel good some of you may have heard this because this was basically relates to this whole idea from some socialists like Karl Marx etc that religion is just the opium of the masses essentially the idea is that uh, the, the idea is that it just puts you to sleep it, it, in, it basically just puts you into a state where you just go along with the status quo. So, when you hear an argument like that, that, oh, that's just a feel-good factor. Sounds like an argument, it sounds like a criticism, it sounds like a valid point. Now, you have to remember, every point that is made is not necessarily a valid point, regardless of how strong people make that point. You have to keep that in mind. Because a lot of the time when people come up to us and they say something and it sounds like a very strong point because of the confidence which which they put it forward and you start feeling like, hey, that is a point. I never thought about it that way. That doesn't make it a correct and a valid point. A simple response to that is that, so what if it's a feel-good factor? Don't human needs, don't human beings need feel-good factors to, to basically ease themselves through this life? What's wrong with that? I will ask the atheist that your auntie who died from cancer after suffering 10 years from it, what did she get out of it? What do you think the atheist will say when they don't believe in the hereafter? 10 years of, 10 years of misery, difficulty, not just for her, but the people around her that cared for her. That difficulty is a difficulty. It's a very painful way to go. What did she get out of it? What did you get out of it? What do you think you'll say? I can say that my mother who passed away, rahimahullah, from 10 years of cancer, I'm going to say she's a shaheed. That's going to make me feel good. I believe in it, but it's going to make me feel good. It's going to let me deal with it. I know she died not for, I, I know she died, uh, I know she did not die for nothing. Because in our tradition, in our, in our sunnah, the Prophet has mentioned, in our sunnah, the Prophet has mentioned up to 70 types of people who die as shaheeds 
without being on the battlefield. There are up to 70 types of people. That means people who die in accidents, people who die with a stomach problem, people who die uh, in a plague, pregnancy, uh, uh, other illnesses, and so on and so forth. They're not shaheeds of this world, so you still have to bury them and deal with them in the same way as you would uh, normal death. But in the hereafter, they rise as shaheeds, as martyrs. Martyrs have a very special place. So yes, it's a feel-good factor, but alhamdulillah, I'm willing to have that feel-good factor. It's not, what's wrong with that? At least I've got a way to deal with it. That's why people with religion and community are the happiest people. This, this is what studies show. So all what atheists is saying is just a claim at the end of the day. It's just that the, the longest, <clears throat> the, the, the longest uh, study ever done in the world, like an academic study from a university, uh, was done by Harvard and it's gone to about 80 years. 70 or 80 years and they started when some of these guys were very young or from their fathers and it's about trying to find how to gain happiness so they've tracked people for over 70 years and they've been having you know uh, 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 what do you call it interviews with them they've been watching them they've been you know uh, assessing them throughout and they've discovered that one of the greatest things that give, makes you happy is to have a good social life to be good with your family to have a good family life. I mean, Islam has been telling us about this, that you can't break your family life. You can't, sorry, break family connections. And the one thing that you have to remember is that when it says that up to three days, that is for non-blood relatives. With blood relatives, you're not even allowed to break even for a moment. You know the three days? That's for non-blood relatives, like a friend, a neighbor or somebody. And you know what the wisdom of the three days is? Have you ever experienced the difference between when you break up with somebody and you make it up straight away and if you broke up for a week or two weeks and then try to make up, which one is more difficult? The second one. Because what happens is that if I'm your friend, right, and we break up, I depend, I've got some dependencies on you because we do things together, you know, I, re I talk to you, I speak to you, I need you, you need me. Now, after three days, I'm going to start looking elsewhere to fill the gap. So the longer you leave it, it's much more difficult to come to reconcile. So there's a certain benefit in the three days that we have. My talk was supposed to be in atheism. We've got young people, I don't want to confuse them more. So that's why I'm adjusting my talk. All I want to tell you is that we've got certain beliefs in Islam that seem to go against science. They're said to go against science. For example, the Mi'raj of the Prophet ﷺ, you've heard of the Mi'raj, right? When the Prophet ﷺ went up to, uh, to Masjid Laksa and then from there he went up to the heavens uh, to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he came back. Now that he went at a time where it was impossible just to go from Makkah Mukarramah to Medina Munawwara in one night. Nowadays you can do that. But in those days you couldn't even go from Makkah Mukarramah to Medina Munawwara or Medina to Makkah. But now you can. So the Mi'raj, on a winged animal, the burak, like a winged horse or whatever you want to call it. So essentially there's a Muslim on t uh, 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 in the media and as he's in the middle of uh, a meeting, somebody asked him that, oh, so you actually believe that that happens, that that happened, that you're a prophet, that you're a Muslim. So does that mean that your, uh, your prophet went up to the heavens on this winged creature can you see the way they're asking the question to make it sound absurd? 
And he said, yes, I do. Which is a very bold thing to be able to say there. Because it's very difficult when people have been... Essentially, what's happened in this country in particular and in many other countries in Europe, although there's some uh, countries in Europe that are still primarily Catholic and they still have a re strong religious ethos like... Uh, uh, like Slovakia, Hungary and all these places but the western ones especially England is totally religion doesn't matter anymore hardly you don't even have to say I'm a Christian anymore it's not even a good thing to say that basically Christianity has been pushed out Christianity was the religion of Europe along with Judaism Judaism they went, went through huge persecution at the beginning of the you know, early parts of the 19th century right uh, especially in places like France and uh, what do you call it, uh, Hungary, uh, in Vienna, in Slovakia, in all of these countries. So they were pushed out. Now Christian, Christians haven't been pushed out, but Christianity has. That means if you go to work, you have to leave your Christianity at the door. You can't bring it inside the laboratory or the office, right? Which means that's why there's even a, cross about whether they, a question about whether they can wear a cross or not. Hijab is, a cross can even be hidden. Hijab is a big issue. Right? Because that's in your face. Right? So that's why you understand now why we have a problem. Right? Why we have a problem. Because it's secularism, anti-religion, that wants to basic that has basically driven out Christianity from all the public spaces, from the media even, except in a bad way, except to, to disparage it and criticize it, and the workplace and other places, and the schools, for example. So, Islam to come into there is much more difficult because we are much more overt, much more clear in the, our dress, in our prayer, in wanting to pray five times a day. Christians don't have to do that. right? As long as they pray on Sunday, they could probably get away with it. The very religious ones. That's why we're having that difficulty. The other thing that's happening in Europe is that secularism and capitalism is basically doing away with the, tr the local traditions the British if there was an old English tradition of some sort that's why they can't even define Britishness anymore we're part of Britishness but they don't want us to be but we're part of it I think that can't be reversed now in terms of the food and everything else but the old traditions around Europe they're all dying out because of capitalism and, so, uh, and uh, uh, consumerism and everything else so they're finding that they're losing all of this and the big enemy that they can see in front of them is basically Islam because we have the most outward expressions of faith. That's why one of the reasons why they hate us so much. Why it's difficult for us to uh, assimilate in that sense. But what I want to say here is that we are living in a time when many of these miracles, you know, as I said, the, 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 uh, the mi'raj. When Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was told by Abu Jahl, I think, that your friend is saying that he went in one night from here all the way up to the heavens and he came back, Jerusalem, up to the heavens and he came back, would you believe that? Abu Bakr said, if he says so, yes. Him believing that and us believing that, his was a much greater achievement. Today, this is not even... You see, in those days, it was from the realm of impossibilities to do that. Because you could not even think of going from Medina, Munawwara, to Makkah, Mukarramah in one night and back. So forget to the other end of, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to Jerusalem and up to the heavens. That was just impossible. Today, these things are not impossible for us. 
So if somebody does ask you that you believe that your Prophet went up to the heavens in one night and came back, do you believe that? Yes, I do believe that. But I'm going to convince you that it's a possibility. I'm going to try to convince you. Reason is that things have changed now. People in those days hadn't gone anywhere. Now they've gone beyond the earth, which was something impossible before. They've gone beyond, they've gone to the moon, unless you're uh, one of the munkirin of the... the, the, the there, there are people who believe that, no, nobody went on the moon, right? A, a rover has gone onto Mars, right? And there are things out there in space, which was impossibility before, right? They've broken that barrier, they've gone. They've opened up the realm of possibility. They've done some other tests, some physics tests of uh, teleportation, so on. It's not there yet, but they've shown these things that now anybody looking at the science today will say, okay, it's difficult, but it doesn't seem impossible anymore because we've already gone some distance now. You see what I'm saying? We're already going some distance. He didn't have a space suit on. So what? Right now, we need a spacesuit to withstand the pressures of outer, of outer space. But with the way things are going and developments in science and technology, how difficult is it for them to eventually come up with a spray that could spray some resistance on you or something else, right? Take a pill and you'll be resistant out there. Do you see what I'm saying? Because of the way science is going. Can you see how no longer... It doesn't sound so absurd anymore when you look at it from that perspective. If you look at it purely from a religious perspective, that is just a myth, an idea, then suddenly you find it difficult to argue. You provide some opening. That's all our responsibility is, by the way. If somebody asks you about Mi'raj, all you have to show to them that, look, it's possible, it's possible now to get out of the confines of this earth and go to a certain degree. So why is it difficult? Why is it difficult that maybe in a hundred years, two hundred years, we may go beyond that? And the Prophet has already been there and done that. Right? Another example is Umar is standing in the masjid on a Jumu'ah. So this has been seen and observed and experienced by all. He's giving his khutbah in among the Sahaba. And suddenly he turns, I can't remember the right or left, and he starts saying Sariya was the name of a person Sariya Al-Jabal Al-Jabal the mountain the mountain like he's suddenly warning somebody that be careful beware of the mountain there's an enemy behind the mountain so there's no Sariya there Sariya was actually miles away hundreds of miles away in a war and Omar then started talking to him see what I'm saying everybody witnessed this some people uh, recorded the time that it happened and when Sariya came back they asked him now what happened and he basically said that I heard his sound I heard his voice telling me to be careful about because we were standing guard somewhere and there was an enemy behind the mountain which we did not know about had we not heard his voice we would have been attacked sounds absurd sounds like myth but it was witnessed by everybody okay we only know that from hadith anyway so again but today that's a possibility Today, a hundred years ago, it has still been difficult to understand this. Today, how difficult is that? I mean, today, maybe what I have to do is I have to pull out my phone. I'm giving you khutbah. And I've actually seen this. I was once in Norway. And the MC, he started the program. And suddenly, it was me and Mawla Ahmed Ali. Right? We're in this, we're in this uh, auditorium. He starts 
introducing the program and suddenly he gets a call and he actually takes it. We, <laughs> he actually, and we were just laughing our head off, right? Pull out my phone and speak to them, right? It might surprise you, but I can do it now, right? I can speak to somebody. Imagine if I, God forbid, there's people who've left their children in cars and they've forgotten and it's a hot day. Imagine somebody realized that he put, 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 uh, opened his phone in the middle of a meeting and it sounded a bit absurd, but you can do that nowadays. Okay, I have to pull out a phone. Actually, I don't have to. I could have an earpiece. Right? Today, I'll still have to have an earpiece. But tomorrow, you might just have a chip here that will allow you to take calls from people. The technology allows that kind of thing now. It's within the realm of possibilities. Does that story of Omar now sound absurd to you? Doesn't that sound a possibility now? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has opened up so much today for us to be able to understand these things that essentially what they did was in another way they are actually Allah is showing us through them what technology may do in the future I mean that's one way to look at it right that's why we Islam has never had a problem with technology our only problem is technology is not the ethical one of why you're doing this it's about how you use technology overindulgence on your phone and uh, the distraction it creates and the marriages it breaks up and the, 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 the disturbance to work and all of that. That's what the problem is that's created by that. Basically, what I'm trying to say, my message today is simple. <clears throat> you, if you want a good faith, Alhamdulillah, majority, I mean, whether that's Alhamdulillah or otherwise, Alhamdulillah, we're all Muslims, right? But most of us here seem to be Muslims by birth. And one of the downfalls of that, one of the good things is that you got it by default. One of the downfalls is that we don't try to really understand our faith. If I ask the adults here, right, that we, since you were in maktab, right, that's probably the only time that you got a, a more intense understanding of what our faith was. The maktab, things that you learned from our parents, and then maybe what you got through bayans. But in terms of taking a course to really understand hadith or Quran, or Tajweed even, majority of us haven't taken it. And it's available nowadays, there's no complaints. You can take them online, on site, uh, Jamia Abu Bakr, uh, sorry, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, and all these other, do you do adult courses? You should, you should do some, right? Uh, there, there, there are so many opportunities. If you build your faith and experience it, the person who can stand up in Tahajjud at night, and then dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and feel the presence of Allah, no argument is going to mess him up. No argument is going to corrupt him. Because they felt it. But if our faith is not based on experience, it's just based on do's and don'ts, somebody may mislead us. That's why I try to find Allah. And the way to find Allah is by remembering Him. And وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَشَدُّ حُبًّا لِلَّهِ the people who believe, who are mu'min, who are believers, are supposed to be the most ardent and strongest in their love for Allah. How do you gain increased love of Allah that is more than anything else? That's the secret of success in this world and the hereafter. And the way to get that is by reciting the Quran with meaning, with reflection, and reciting it in general. Number two, by doing dhikr of Allah. Because if Allah is not in the heart, 
by us taking his name over. Allah says in the Quran, remember the name of your Lord. That's what we mean by remembering Allah. If you sit down, I want to remember Allah. What are you going to remember? What are you going to think of? Because Allah is beyond any description. So you can't think of Allah like that. The way to think of Allah, to remember Allah is through his name. La ilaha illallah. Allah, Allah. Subhanallah. Alhamdulillah. Then they say that you'll go from, Allah will take you from the name to the named one. Allah will give you that experience. So every day we need to spend at least 5-10 minutes doing extra dhikr beyond our salat. Otherwise the real status of a believer eventually should be That wherever they are, whatever they are, whatever they're doing, they should be in remembrance of Allah. Meaning the heart is connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why uh, we were just in Uzbekistan uh, and there when you go to, uh, what's his name? Bahauddin Naqshband Rahmatullahi Ali's uh, Mazar, he's, there's two ideas there, which came, his idea was to try to bring remembrance while you're doing your work. So don't make dhikr just a separate thing you do uh, where you have to separately sit down and do dhikr. His idea was to make dhikr uh, a reality throughout your day. So he came up with two ideas. One, he says, Dast um, Bakar. Dil bayar, which basically means your hand is on your job, but your, your heart is with your Lord. So you're there in a sorting office. And mashallah, we have one Maulana who's up in one of the uh, Lancashire. He works in a sorting office, a uh, uh, post office sorting office, and he finishes one Quran every day. He finishes a Quran every day while he's at work six, seven hours sorting, uh, sorting post. Right? His, his hand in, is on his work and his heart is somewhere else it's it's not easy to you have to do a lot of dhikr to get to that state but that should be your ultimate so then you'll be remembering allah whether you're standing sitting or lying down and the second thing he said this concept it's persian uh, in farsi is khalwat uh, dar anjuman so you're sitting in a group of people and they just a lot of our majalis a lot of our gatherings are just a waste of time sometimes right but there he's connected to allah he's got khalwa he's got solitude he's with allah him and Allah, even though he's sitting among people. You're sitting on a bus, a train, going to work, and mashallah, you're there with Allah, wherever you are. If you get, inshallah, Allah give us that state. Amen. But when you get that kind of a state, nothing can bother you. Because the strongest faith is the experiential faith. Not the one through evidences. Because evidences can have other evidences, counter evidences. But the one through experience. And for the parents here, this is what we need to try to inculcate in our children. Because it's more necessary than ever. The atmosphere outside, the environment outside in the schools, and you know the, 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 the battles that are taking place. It's for the minds and hearts of the children now. Right? That's what it is to indoctrinate and pollute and, and, and so on. If you don't have strong faith in the heart that is not just based on namaz parlo, but why namaz parlo? So that even when we're not around, our children pray namaz, perform prayer. How do you get that? If you don't know, ask the ulama about that. That's what the topic, that, sorry, that's what we should be aiming at now. We need to take it a notch higher because the battle is a notch higher. It's, it's a serious, uh, it's a, there's a difficulty. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for assistance. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for help. And we ask Allah to give us uh, that understanding and that closeness and that dhikr. Jazakumullah khairan.